Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Arlene Davila, author of Latinos, Inc., The Marketing and Making of a People, published by the University of California Press in 2001 and recently re-released in 2012 with an updated preface and forward. Dr. Davila is a full professor of anthropology at New York University. Her research interests include comparative race and ethnic studies, media studies, political economy, Globalization, Visual Culture, Urban Studies, and Latinos in the U.S. Professor Davila has written extensively on cultural politics, marketing to Latinos, public representations of Latinos, and the Latinization of the United States. Her books include Sponsored Identities, Cultural Politics in Puerto Rico, published in 1997, Latinos, Inc., which will be our conversation today, initially published in 2001, Barrio Dreams, Puerto Ricans, Latinos, and the Neoliberal City, that was published in 2004, and Latino Spin, Public Image, and the Whitewashing of Race, which was published in 2008. Well, hello, Arlene, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Um, hello, excited to be here. Well, me too. I'm excited you're on the channel. I've been waiting for this uh, conversation for quite a while. And I was wondering if you could uh, begin our discussion today by just telling us a little bit about you know, your background and you know, your, your pathway to becoming uh, an academic. Um, yes, of course. Um, I'm a proud uh, Puerto Rican, and I came here to do my studies. And I was actually working um, in, in the arts, in Latino arts, in, in the ni- late 1990s, uh, in Museo del Barrio, the Museum of Contemporary Hispanic Art, um, and which no longer exists. It was an, an incredible institution. But I, I joined a PhD in anthropology to do an AED with the idea that I would be I would get more money in the arts, really, as an administrator. Mm-hmm. This was back when CUNY had um, open admission, allowed non-matriculated students to take classes with PhD students. And mm. I looked back at that time as, you know, what a great opportunity because, you know, there were a lot of people in my position that didn't necessarily want to be in academia but had the opportunity. And many of us did turn into academia that way, and it was a very diverse space. And I, that opportunity is no longer available. Um, I see how PhD programs have become so professionalized, and, and that's the big problem, I feel, because it really limits who can access them. But, but it was, um, that's how uh, all of a sudden um, uh, I was bitten by the academic bug because I felt that through uh, my courses, I was beginning to see my cultural work in these institutions more critically, specifically because I was working in the midst of multiculturalism and a lot of the identity politics in the arts were kind of, it was a very interesting space to be working in the arts and also mm-hmm. be taking class anthropology. So that's how it all started. Um, then all of a sudden I just, I got a grant to do my, my first uh, my dissertation and I continued and that's how it all started. But it's not because I wanted to be a professional scholar and I still uh. don't think of myself that way. And I tell my students, you know, uh, it's okay if you don't, you know, I, I, I think it's important to, to not, think, not take academia too seriously sometimes. I think we do. 
Um, but anyways, that's another conversation. <laughs> well, I appreciate you sharing with that. And I, I agree wholly. I think, uh, as you mentioned, uh, as the profession becomes um, increasingly, uh, I think, um, you know, not just professionalized, but in that, you know, specialized, um, it, it, there's the potential that, as you, you bring up, we can become a little disconnected, I think, from um, those outside of the academic world. Uh, earlier, we were kind of talking about writing, uh, but off air. And, and that's, I think, just one example at times our, our writing or maybe our topical interest can, can become so minute uh, uh, that it, it may seem hard harder to the broader public to really, you know, connect the dots and, and see applications or connections outside of, uh, of our field. You have to always be involved with communities and with the pulse of everyday life, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's it's such a rich, uh, a rich space in which to be working today. Right. And so let's, uh, how, you mentioned the, uh, the working on your dissertation. Is, is that how Latinos Inc. began? Was this part of your dissertation yeah. project? Absolutely, because, you know, when I was working on sponsor identities, you know, um, you know, there's a chapter there that's called uh, Marketing and Making National Identities, because what to me was so surprising is that the Puerto Rican who grew up in Puerto Rico in the 70s in the midst of this political persecution, where, you know, there was, it was not okay or popular to, be, to, to, to claim Puerto Rican pride because it was seen as a sign of independentismo or nationalism that was persecuted. And then to return in the 90s and kind of see, you know, when I was doing my dissertation, to see how all of a sudden Puerto Rican culture was, was hot, was popular. You know, right. and, and, mm-hmm. there were, and there were festivals, and there was this effervescence, right, at the local level. And um, and I began to realize that a lot of that was fueled by, um, you know, marketing campaigns, you know, um, that were really, um, at the time, you know, providing a space for cultural groups to, to, to organize around different versions of Puerto Rican identity. And, and surprisingly, a lot of those campaigns were um, developed by nationalists who couldn't get jobs in the government, so they just they were doing this through the private sector and all of a sudden popularizing Puerto Rican identity, you know? Mm. And I, I was curious, you know, wow, I wonder if the same thing is, not, is happening in the context of the United States with Latinos. And, uh, and I was very curious because this is also the moment of the Latin boom, the late 1990s, when you have, you know, J-Lo and Ricky Martin and, you know, hey. and the whole, right? And then in, in scholarship, a lot of people were talking about cultural citizenship and kind of like a lot of boosterism around the combination of Latinos through mm. cultural in, in cultural and symbolic spaces, and and I wanted to explore that, but also I always had a, some skepticism that you know that a lot of what I was seeing was more boss than reality. But I um, but I knew that 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 marketing would be an interesting space because it was in Puerto Rico, um, and of course you know it had to be even more so in in, in in the United States. What I didn't know is whether I could access it, you know, because when you think right. about Hispanic marketing, Latino marketing, it's like a nationwide industry. How would you access it, right? Right. Um, to my surprise, you know, it was just a matter of a couple phone calls. You know, the red book that listed all the advertising agencies had a small section on Hispanic marketing agencies, many of them in New York City. And I just picked up the phone, and a couple people didn't respond to my calls, but mm-hmm. but one person did, and she kind of opened up. I'm like, wow, what a great idea. And, uh, and I was immediately... I had immediate access. There was a lot of interest from them because they felt that they wanted to be validated. Right. 
And also, this is the main, this is also at the same time that the Association of Hispanic Advertising Agencies was coming to was, was becoming coming into being. So there were a lot of opportunities for for following that conference and meeting a lot of the other um, advertisement people in marketing nationwide because people were getting together um, through conferences um, through this new space, professional space. So. So yeah, but it all started from from that one chapter in sponsor identities, looking wow. at the role of marketers in uh, fueling Puerto Rican identity. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned how um, you know the book kind of begins with uh, establishing the basis of the Hispanic marketing and advertising industry, and uh, a real key component. And uh, maybe you can you can correct me, but maybe the primary argument of the book is you know the role of of those people of those within the Hispanic marketing and advertising industry in shaping public perceptions you know, actually right the, the the strong influence they have in those public rep, uh, prep, uh, perceptions and representations of what constitutes latino identity and culture so could you talk uh, a bit about um, you know those people you know those that were involved in the establishment of a hispanic marketing industry uh, what were some of their motivations and particularly what's been their enduring influence on how we even now, you know, the, the public, the people outside of that marketing intelligentsia, right, um, vision and understand what Latino culture is. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, um, the, the Cuban, the Cuban contingent. You know, <laughs> um, it was it's fascinating to see how these, you know, global industries, you know, have, you know, founders and pioneers, and you know, oftentimes are, you know, are born serendipitously. But in the, in the case of Hispanic marketing, you know, it could be traced to, you know, these Cuban pioneers, many of whom had contacts with corporate America back in Cuba. Uh, because they work more or less in that industry. Uh, it's important to remember that, that Cuba was a very important cultural player in terms of producing um, television and advertisements for the Americas before the revolution. So, so that many of these Cuban pioneers were very versed with the idea of a kind of pan-Latinidad mm-hmm. because they were already in that idea for American corporate clients that they were represented in Cuba. Um, but so I highlight how many of them came to New York with previous contacts or with uh, know-how and with this idea also, um, you know, that, that um, you know, I, I talk about how in contrast to Mexican-Americans um, that face incredible discrimination against speaking Spanish in public, for instance, Cubans were exempted from that experience. They came to New York with the idea, the entitlement idea that, you know, we should speak Spanish because that's what we that's what we speak, and we should be advertising in Spanish and, mm. um, and selling this idea uh, to corporate America. Also, benefiting from the civil rights struggles, you know, waged by you know, African Americans, Puerto Ricans, Chicanos, um, that also opened up a space in corporate America for all of a sudden, you know, to have corporate accounts and clients and people interested in, you know, ethnic consumers. You know, so they also benefited from that, you know, not only from the previous contacts, but also the political moment um, where all of a sudden there was a a political imperative, right? right, that they also. Um, played into, you know, uh, this idea that, you know, many of them also saw themselves as part of that movement, you know, well, we, we're defending, you know, Latinidad, Latinos and Hispanics, you know, by, by claiming our equal space on the table. Um, um, let me think. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so that was, that was, um, that, that's really key because, you know, I talk about 
the kind of ironies then, you know, that, that, that were central foundation of this industry because for years and, you know, arguably today, you know, remains very controlled by, you know, Latin American, you know, first generation migrants, you know, people with very lot of connections with global advertising industries in, you know, now, now increasingly from Latin America, Mexico. Um, so you have this kind of importation of creative talent, you know, that continues apace. And I talk about this ethnic division of cultural labor and, and linguistic division of labor that was um, that was consolidated by the fact that the industry was so centralized and organized around Spanish dominance and the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, we address Spanish language consumers. This, um, so so that that's one of the issues that I that I highlight is how that the centrality of this idea of Spanish language, his, even Hispanic marketing, right? And I mean that that the word Hispanic marketing is predicated on the notion that Spanish language becomes a dominant rationale for defending the authenticity and the justification right. and the existence of this industry, you know. Um, and, and, and this was, you know, this had a lot of currency, you know, still today, this idea has a lot of currency, which is kind of unbelievable, you know, given that, you know, there's the, the generations of bilingual and English dominant Latinos, you know, right. there's still this idea that predominates today that, you know, when you're talking about, you know, Latino consumers, you have to somehow include Spanish language because even if they speak it, Spanish, you know, is what moves people. They're emotionally connected to Spanish even if they don't speak it. So it, it, it continues to uh, to feed this, this industry as kind of Spanish language base that then, con, you know, uh, facilitates the importation of content, importation of talent, you know. And one of the main points that I argue in the book is how this industry has ironically contributed to making Latinos second class, mm-hmm. second class citizens twice, you know, because they're not included in the mainstream media, but then they're also not included in the media that's supposed to represent them because it's so narrowly defined around Spanish language, you know, that it, in, that, that, that it reproduces hierarchies around which, which constituencies can be represented, but also which workers, which creative workers can get jobs, you know, right, right. And, and, and who cannot get jobs in that industry. Uh, I mean, things have changed a little bit there, but that remained, that has remained a big, one of the big ideas of this, that Hispanic marketing continues to, continues to revolve around. Uh, yes, and um, I, I think that um, what what is also interesting is the implications behind that if we decouple you know, the Spanish language from um, the basis of, you know, the most basic or foundational starting point of what identifies Latino uh, or Hispanic culture, where then, uh, you know, I mean, that, that just causes a whole bunch of questions. And I, I think it's, it really is decentering in, in, in the public mindset and even in mine, you know, as a, as a, as an academic, one that has spoken with a, a number of you know, authors in, you know, this genre um, and, touched on the conversations as to what identifies, um, you know, Latino culture and identity and, and Spanish is the Spanish language is pretty much always, you know, up there, you know, if not number one, number two, it's one of the, the, the primary, uh, assumptions that, that we, uh, associate, yeah. I think with, with such a thing as, you know, this pan ethnic, this idea of, of a pan ethnic identity or culture. Yeah. And that's also said by the, um, language television networks, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's really important that, you know, unlike um, African-Americans, Asian-American, other ethnic groups, you know, uh, racial ethnic groups in this country, Latinos from early on, you know, uh, had 
Spanish Univision and Telemundo, you know, which were nationwide TV, you know, media that were crafting that idea, you know, of the United, you know, Hispanidad, you know, and that's really powerful when you think about, you know, and really strengthen the this industry, you know, because these Hispanic marketers, you know, could say, you know, listen, you know, you have to advertise to Latinos, in, and they had a space where to put those advertisements, right? Mm-hmm. They and they had the muscle of Univision, which became really powerful in uh, fueling research and kind of homogenizing how the market would be sold. Right. Um, and, 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 and the parameters, you know, and, the, and I remember when I was interviewing people, everybody, of course, knew that, that half of that was a joke. I mean, like, of course, most of the, a lot of the, you know, Hispanic marketers were very savvy, were very bilingual, you know. Right. And, and to me, it was fascinating. How I'm like, I'm, for goodness sake, your children are speaking, in, you know, in dominant, you know, and I'm like, come on, who, who, you know, like, it's such the biggest joke, you know, to me, mm-hmm. it's like, I still laugh about it, you know, but it, but it's also fed by the fact that you have this powerful media, but also, you, you know, it's fed by the ignorance of corporate America, you know, mm-hmm. and one of the, you know, I was, I think one of the most, you know, there's some, some funny parts in Latino things, you know, it's like all these stories that people told me of how, of the ignorance of corporate America and, and that allowed them to get away with, you know, with a lot, you know, right. because time when you could say, you know, I'm, I'm Latino, um, I'm Hispanic, you know, about Hispanics and leave it at that. Um, and, um, and, and also corporate American, you know, like the fact that you had a justifiable, essentially it's authentic um, pitch, right? Because, you know, why should they advertise to a community that they could reach through their advertisements, you know? And here is, you know, a community that says, no, you need to advertise them in Spanish because, you know, and, and you know, that, that really justified the, the fact that you, 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 had, you had an authentic, essentializing object, object right? Mm-hmm. That's that could be advertised, that could be, that could be, that you could speak to, right, if you speak through them. Um, so, so in a way, everybody's on the joke and continues to be in the joke, you know. Um, by the way, it's interesting that um, just this past year, Univision just inaugurated Slama, which is the first English language video portal um, for millennials, just in English. Mm. It's um, again, it's not that these media um, were ignorant about English language. It's just that this group was not as profitable. You know, you couldn't sell them as easily to corporate America. Right. There you um, as you said, you know, like, how do you begin to 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 evoke all these other aspects of what makes Latinos Latinos, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, however, beyond language, there were other myths. And I, I think I talk about, you know, the nostalgia, you know, the, you know, the the traditional Latino, you know, the conservative Latino, you know, there was all these myths that also are bundled with this idea of the first, you know, that are very much about like first immigrant, you know, right. that were packaged at the time that, that also fed into, you know, the family oriented conservative brand loyal Latino, you know, right. um, which is, you know, very marketable, far more marketable, you know, than, than, than it is, um, you know, to, 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 to imagine, um, I don't know, second generation or Latinos, for instance, um, that would be, would be, we're not, we're not watching these channels. Right. And we're, we're starting to get to exactly where I wanted to go next was the, the, um, you know, the, the underlying ideas, um, behavioral assumptions and stereotypes, if you will, that, that undergird the definition, uh, you know, of marketing to a Latino, um, you know, public. And, and so those 
stereotypes or you've mentioned some of them, things like uh, people that are you know tradi- traditional, right? Conservative, Catholic, uh, right? We've mentioned Spanish language already, family oriented, immigrant background. All of these are are powerful notions that have uh, shaped uh, the representation of Latinos in. Um, you know, from the those Hispanic advertisers that are you know selling this idea to corporate America that there's there's something uh, that exists that would be a, a defined market, right? You mentioned that there's this desire to find a a nation within the nation, if you will, something that they can market specifically to, right? Ah, uh, no, that's rub of the nation within the nation, you know, the idea of a separate culture from the United States was so central in defending, you know, the viability of a unique market that can be contained and separated from the mainstream, you know. Um, and, you know, it's just so problematic, too, because, you know, it lessens the total reality of, you know, the culturalism, acculturation, especially in the area of language, but... But um, but but again, you know, yeah, this idea was was really really powerful, you know, um, you know, the idea of safe, authentic, ready market, um, um, and then within this nation, within the nation, you know, you have these these ideas of, you know, how do you represent it uh, visibly because it's our you know visual media, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But ends up, um, you know, the representations, you know, are really problematic, you know. Um, we're still talking about the wide, wide world of Hispanic media, you know, because uh, you have in the trope of, you know, the, lat- the Latin look, you know, you know, uh, models couldn't be too white, but also not too dark. You know, you, you're you not going to see Afro-Latinos, you know, in Spanish language television because, oh, my God, they could be confused for African-Americans and we're selling Latinos, right? <laughs> you have, you know, you Afro-Latinos maybe are, are either personalities like Celia Cruz, you know, people representing themselves but not representing Latinos. You know, you don't see Indo-Latinos unless it's for liability lawyers, you know, those kinds of more, um, but aspirational images for aspirational dudes, you know, you have this, you know, Latin look that became so, um, you know, so hegemonic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have this idea, you know, the walk don't quite Spanish, right? The idea that there is a Spanish that is more standardized and more representative of, you know, mm-hmm. that consolidation, you know, so as a nation within a nation that have their own language, their own ideas, their own look, um, which, you know, is, of course, embedded in those racial ideologies, too, because what we see is that, you know, we have the Mexican, more Chilango, more DF, you know, Spanish, because it's the one that, that people are likely to accept as standardized because of the heavy weight of the Mexican telenovelas dominating. So you, you don't see Dominican, Caribbean, Puerto Rican, Spanish ever being seen as, you know, as, as standard. Um, so you have this kind of racial um, linguistic also hierarchies about which accents are supposedly more or less representative of the larger constituency. Um, but and then and then along with this idea, you know, all these others around, you know, the emotional Latino, you know, the Latino that is always, you know, um, that cares about their family uh, and all the tropes, you know. And and when I was doing the, there's a lot of examples of the type of tropes, you know, a lot of the abuelitas, you know, the families, the 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 that that really revolve around it kind of ethos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, English Latinos um, that I, I kind of, you know, what I, what I try to do is like, what, what's at stake with this representation, you know, because when I was writing in the book and we still have this debate about, you know, positive stereotypes, right? Um, right. Positive or negative stereotypes. And this is an industry 
that positions itself as correcting stereotypes, right? Like, mm-hmm. off because we know the consumers and we're not going to do blunders. We're not going to rely on stereotypes. We really know the right way to reach that. I mean, that's the, that's their pitch to corporate America. But then what you, what you see in these so-called positive stereotypes, you know, are more, even more problematic perhaps than negative stereotypes, you know, because they're as equally loaded in, you know, in racial ideologies and, and in inequalities of power. And so you have this, you know, compensating, you know, like the, the good family, you know. So you present these, you know, Latinos as this squeaky clean, you know, and in fact, Latino spinning, which was, you know, the book after a couple books later, really, I wanted to analyze that more, you know, this kind of, the politics of overcompensating by highlighting, you know, the more sanitized, quick, clean, white-looking Latinos as the, as the representation of that nation within the nation that mm-hmm. it hurts more too, you know, because it presents us as a passive constituency, you know, aligned with, you know, conservative values. Right. It ignores the history of Latinos as, you know, in this country, you know, for like generations, always presents us as like forever immigrants, you know, like needy mm-hmm. of, you know, needy of our own media. And it creates a kind of segregationist view that, you know, corporate clients love because, you know, they're safe, contained, but it's not real. And it hurts us in so many ways that um, um, that I, I, I think need to be uh, always problematized. And I think that's a great connection that you you bring out in in uh, you know in the book. You really you discuss this. Uh, what we're talking about here is the sanitization, right? I think that's how, that's how you uh, depict it in the book, and that's a term you use. Yeah, but a sanitization of Latino identity and culture that that goes according to these hierarchies of race and culture and and nationality, and the underlying you know the, the driving force there is this um, this desire to create the notion again of a market that is safe and by safe where you know you point out uh, someone that's you know right consumer minded uh, brand loyal uh, also someone that can you know a group that can be digested themselves and and, and seen as non-threatening by by corporate America right absolutely this idea don't, don't panic you know don't panic we are we are we're we're more Americans than the Americans you know <laughs> Like, like later on, you know, many people, you know, but this idea that, you know, we, you know, yeah, we're many and, you know, we're all over the place, but, you know, we're in fact going to not threaten America, but renew it along the values that it, that it cherishes, you know, which are these conservative values, you know, we're the ones who are going to be, you know, that are, are, are silly. It's just, you know, like, you know, it's just ridiculous and don't get me started because, you know, um, I mean, you see I think you wanted to talk about Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and all these characters, you know, mm-hmm. and why they've managed to capture the imagination, you know, so many voters, you know, many mm-hmm. of them not Latino, by the way. It's exactly because of that, you know. I mean, what's Latino about Ted Cruz and Mario and Marco Rubio? You know, they have this Cuban immigrant story, you know, that, that they present as, you know, bootstrap story, which is not true because, you know, um, we have to understand the ways in which Cubans, you know, were benefited from U.S. foreign policy and immigration exactly. policy. None of that gets discussed, you know. Right. So they're they this, you know, squeaky clean, very white light skin, so pale that you could even see through their faces, you know. And, and you know, with, and, and it's just, 
Um, anyways, don't get me started on that one, too. Well, we're going to come but, back to that one, but because <laughs> I, I definitely want oh, I think no. it's so okay. prescient to talk about that. But again, um, before that, I, I wanted to talk, we, we were talking about, again, the way Latino culture is just, you know, flattened and sanitized. Um, so what about the role of market research, right? I mean, there is this whole idea that, uh, you know, corporate America is based on all these market studies and, and, you know, thereby there's, there's some type of scientific component to why they are doing what they're doing. But you actually state that, 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 that that's not the case or that at least the, the underlying, uh, you know, stereotypes and behavioral ideas of, you know, what consists of being Hispanic or Latino, which were established, you know, decades ago, that those actually are, are, are you know, supported by this so-called, uh, you know, the, the, any type of scientific analysis or research that's, that's done. Can you talk about that a bit? Because I think that's, that's I think really fascinating how, you know, you would think, again, that, that research itself could help to undermine, you know, those type of stereotypes that, that drive uh, the main ideas behind who they're marketing to and how these representations are made. Um, but it's, it's really, it's, it's still those, those uh, right, these stereotypes that, that have been underlying the market uh, from the beginning. Absolutely. And, you know, if, I, if I'm going to tell you one big takeaway that I think um, I would like to learn more about, and I'm surprised no one has picked up, picked it up. And I mean, there's a couple of research that, you know, some students, you know, I'm thinking of Michael Rodriguez, that, you know, PhD student is looking at pollsters and, you know, have a grad student here, Marcel Salas, that is looking at, um, you know, uh, researcher, uh, research in the creation of total market, you know, the new kind of uh, way in which there's no... So ethnic marketing is leading to, that's another conversation. But um, I was so surprised because, you know, when I was writing the book, research was kind of in, you know, in baby steps, right? Mm -hmm. And it was an area of great uh, anxiety because people wonder, oh, my God, if we have do research and, and the research begins to, to really highlight the complexity of this constituency, how are we going to manage it? How are we going to be able to sustain the accuracy and profitability of the market that, you know, when, when the research shows that, well, it's more complex less than that, right? Mm-hmm. So what's fascinating, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm fascinating, you know, in, in, in exploring, you know, the, the, the makings of research and the politicization of research and the political economy of research, you know, like, and how research is very much a social construction. You know, we give so much privacy to numbers. Right. And, you know, one of the marketers told me, you know, figures lie and liars figure, you know. Um, <laughs> So many different ways in which you can do the research, and oftentimes because a lot of this marketing research is proprietary, that means that it's corporate-owned and that they'll show you the results, but they'll never tell you how they got those results, the methodology, right. and how the sample was, was um, you know, um, was surveyed or anything. Right. So it's so problematic because you basically, you know, you have a whole... Um, you know, and research is becoming more and more powerful because exactly it's so easy to manipulate and yet provide this kind of scientific idea of, of authenticity, rigor, and truth, right. you know? Um, but this is not only in marketing, it affects pollsters, you know, it affects poly- politics. It's become, you know, research has become, you know, the figure that, you know, where Latinos are, um, are most, you know, manipulated, you know? Mm-hmm. But, you know, as you could really say anything about Latinos because, you know, as I remember interviewing somebody at the Pew Hispanic Center, you know, who basically admitted, listen, you could say anything about Latinos because right. Latinos are the number, are the fastest growing, and um, so many of us that you could say that 
Latinos are the are rising in home ownership, are rising in coke drinking, or rising on anything because they're always rising. There's too many of us, you know. <laughs> the number of like the abundance and the boosterism story in so many different ways doesn't come with the numbers, but that doesn't make it any 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 valid, you know, any more true than anything else, right? Yeah. Um, but then that's another conversation that. That yeah, so I, I highlight how research in fact has become needs to be probed, um, and the racial politics behind the research, you know, right. uh, more than ever, more than ever today, especially in this neoliberal climate where we tend to value numbers and statistics and um, and and more than anything. Yeah, and I think that's very important because there there is the the broader popular acceptance that. Um, Although people understand it's more complicated, there's a lot of power to the phrase uh, that numbers don't lie, right? And and that's actually not the case. That they 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 are they may not numbers may not lie, but but people misrepresent, or at least there are underlying assumptions that delineate, right? That form the boundaries of how a study begins, right? Where the where the research actually begins, right? Uh, and that's what you you point to, and those are the holes that that you poke in this this idea of uh, scientific market research is that people, you know, they bring to a scientific so called scientific study, right? A you know underlying assumptions that shape where the you know who they're going to target, what they're going to focus on, what are the questions going to be asked, what are the you know if there are five or six you know variables, what those variables are, right? And that automatically um, you know constrains right other possibilities and, and limits other possibilities, right? The, 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 the easiest example is you only sample Spanish dominant Latinos, you're mm-hmm. gonna find that, you know, Univision and Telemundo are the number one TV station, station for all Latinos. Exactly. But you for Spanish language Latinos, you know. So that's, you know, there's so many, so many cases like that, you know, um, where, you know, you have the results represented as all Latinos, yet the sample is either, you know, regionally bounded or linguistically bounded or, you know, there's matters of class. I mean, there's so many ways in which you could cut the tie when Latinos are concerned to get what you want um, in terms of the results thoughts on what you're trying to sell and market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's, um, so there's two parts to, um, you know, the marketing and, and making of, you know, Latinos there's, and, and how advertisers try to reach them, right? There's, um, both the, the, the attempt to reach that market that they've defined as Latino and Hispanic. And at the same time, you know, those, um, those representations expend, extend beyond that group, right? And present images of Latinos and, and culture to, you know, a non-Hispanic audience. So one thing that, um, that I'm interested in and the, the book talks about is the actual role of Spanish language programming on, you know, t- the TV networks we've mentioned, uh, Univision and Telemundo. Um, so I want you to talk a bit about to whom, that is like what people and to what extent do these shows or have they influenced, right, the notions of Latino identity and culture for that target market group, for Latinos themselves, right? Um, yeah. No, I mean, one of the uh, most incredible ironies that I still don't understand is, is how we have a Hispanic, a vibrant Hispanic marketing industry that solves itself on the basis of targeting U.S.-born Latinos. You know, the idea is that you can't just translate an ad from English, nor can you just import an ad from Mexico and pretend to reach U.S. consumers, that there's something different about U.S. Latinos, right? Mm-hmm. An industry that believes that at the same time that continues to 
you know, import, you know, like place the ads in a media environment that is dominated by imported programming. And there's an idea that, well, no, things are different now because there's a lot of U.S.-based productions, you know, in Miami, and that is true. But oftentimes they are, you know, with imported actors and actresses and talent, you know, because right. it's, because within this media medium of, of Spanish language, right, that limits the represent, you know, limits the, the content, you know. So you have now that Spanish language television has become more diverse. You have Colombian productions, for instance, you know, have productions from other parts of Latin America, but you still have that kind of imported content. And then the ads, right? So it doesn't kind of make sense sometimes, like how could a corporate America be so blinded, you know, that they, you know, that they buy both, you know. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, what, what's fascinating and what I've seen is that, you know, there's incredible, there's been a lot of criticism about, you know, this, the wide world of Spanish language television. You know, this past couple of years, you know, there's been incredible backlash, you know, when you may recall the big debate when the Univision anchor was um, the first time, because, you know, they do this all the time, you know, that they make fun, they have all this, you know, racial insensitive language and representations and, you know, uh, the whole brouhaha over Michelle Obama being compared to an, a Planet of the Apes character, mm-hmm. I think that was like two years ago, that led to the, to, you know, the, the firing of this, of this anchor. I mean, that was kind of huge, you know, but that was because people are saying it's, it's enough, you know, uh, we can put up with this, you know, um, and there's now, I believe in the, the association of Hispanic journalists, Hispanic journalists has a, has a task force to look at Hispanic media more carefully. Um, uh, but but this this backlash also I think is is you know has hemispheric components because you know there's now a lot of you know Afro Latinos you know and you know mm-hmm. indigenous movements you know throughout the Americas that are also criticizing the the white space of their televisions you know the white productions and the use of blackface in Latin America I mean it's kind of scandalous but there's so many comedians you know in Latin America that you know that still don blackface. And, and there's, I think that there's a renewed, and I, and I and I speak about this because given that there are a lot of the content of the Spanish television in the United States is is imported, right? There are implications, there are historic implications when we begin to talk about when we begin to challenge this media to be um, to 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 step up, you know, and 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 and, 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 and at all levels, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hopeful of the moment, you know, that I think people are becoming more sensitized. Um, people are raving about the new Celia Cruz telenovela, which I've just seen glimpses of. But that's kind of a major thing, too, you know. Um, you know, a black woman and, you know, a Cuban-American. That's that's incredible story, you know, that, that, you know, we have so many stories that could be that could be told in this medium and um, not an excuse to be... Um, to be uh, to be uh, trafficking on 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 all stereotypes. I don't mm-hmm. know if this answers, but but I think that if, if you know if you're asking me what do people see and what do they learn about Latinos when they turn television, it's still very unfortunate. I mean, thank goodness Don Francisco is out of the picture, you know, <laughs> but but you have all these you know tropicalizing stereotypes right. that we see. Our community, you know, of like, you know, ladies in bikini and, you know, and, and, um, and, and, you know, white blonde, you know, you would think that Latinos are whiter than Scandinavians, you right. know, right. you would watch television. And mm-hmm. I mean, and I, I mean, I, I think that's just, that's just unacceptable, you know, right. and I think that there's 
lot of groups and uh, social activists on the ground that have been saying so for years, and I think that there, some of them are being finally being heard. Um, and, the, and and but we need to we need to continue the pressure, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because a lot remains to be done. And indeed, and that's on the Spanish language side. And um, I, I, I know the the book doesn't get too much into this, but I invite you to, to comment on it. Um, what about how this these representations play out in English language programming? Because it seems to me, just as I start to think of shows off the top of my head, uh, the George Lopez show uh, recently, unfortunately, they recently canceled a Cristela uh, Alonso show, um, and then you know there are other uh, Latina. Uh, Usually it's generally Latino, but Latinos and Latinas that are in, um, you know, other English language programming. Uh, so, and it seems to me that on the English language side, um, the shows tend to push the Mexican component of uh, Latino identity and, and culture. Um, but that's just things I'm thinking about off the top of my head. Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe some of the, the, the differences, both the similarities and the differences you've seen between the representations of Latinos in you know English language programming compared to that of, of Spanish language. Yeah, no, and and then you have Jane the Virgin, you know, which right, I did, yeah, example mm-hmm. that's you know uh, breaking boundaries. Um, but no, I mean uh, the thing with uh, prime time TV is you know I always get so disheartened, you know, because yeah, we're seeing shows like Jane the Virgin and a couple other sprinkled characters, and but that's. So little, right? I mean, I'm sure that you've seen this report um, by uh, sponsored by the National Association of Latino Independent Producers that was published, I think, two two years ago, perhaps, um, titled "The Latino Media Gap." And one of the points that they highlight is that um, there's a huge gap in the representation of Latinos in primetime television, both in front and behind the camera, because right. this is also important talk about, we tend to think about in terms of like, do we see Latinos in, you know, in, in television? Right, right. And important conversation is, uh, where are the Latino producers, directors, camera people, you know? Those are huge jobs, you know? But but this report show that, you know, uh, this, you know, we have Latinos growing in consumer power and growing in size so that we could now claim 17% of the U.S. population is Latino, um, yet relative to these numbers, the representation of Latino in the media is like, you know, 1%, 2%, 3%, um, claiming in the report that the Latinos had more primetime coverage in the 60s, in the 50s and the 60s, than relative to the numbers than they do today. Right. <laughs> I think it's important, um, this is an important report, that it puts numbers, you know, we tend to think we see a couple more shows, but, you know, relative to the size of the Latino community, you know, mm-hmm. we are not, you know, we get... We're getting peanuts, you know, and it's important that we don't let any, you know, uh, Hollywood or any, you know, anybody out there uh, be misguided because they, because you know, they see Jane the Virgin and they think that you know, are taking over the television, you know, it's like, oh my God, no, you know, like people of color, and that's like ridiculous, you know. We need to be, you know, we need to be seventeen percent of all characters, you know, mm-hmm. or more. Mm-hmm. You know? Same with African Americans and people of color. You know, we tend to think that because we have one or two or three shows that are that have finally we have a black lead. You know, when mm-hmm. scandal, black lead in thirty years, and people were like, "Oh my God, now they're going to take jobs from white actresses." Yeah. And I'm like, "Oh my goodness, 
first black female leading 30 years, give me a freaking break, you know? But we're scared of seeing people in co- of color in the television, and, and when we do, they're taking over the world, because, mm-hmm. you know, we have naturalized this, you know, white, white space, white, white box, that only white people should come out of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but, you know, I... Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not very optimistic in anything I see, particularly because you know um, my concern has always been to not only talk about representation. One of the big points that sometimes get lost that gets lost in Latinos Inc. is this critique to the politics of representation. Right. Because you know we tend to think that the way we address negative images is through positive images. Exactly. Right. Uh-huh. So we need. Uh-huh ridiculous because those politics of representation do nothing as long as you have the media control, the ownership in white hands. Mm-hmm. And you have one, you know, where Latinos are just consumers and not stakeholders, you know, mm-hmm. media that is targeted to them. So we need to change the conversation so that when we talk about media equity, we're not only talking about are we seeing ourselves in television, but also are we getting the jobs, are we getting the paychecks, are we getting to vote in the Oscar guilds, you know, are we getting the positions of power, are we getting, you know, ownership really, you know, mm-hmm. because we're talking about jobs and equity, we're talking about the Latinization of the entire media industry, and sadly, what sometimes research shows is that you see more images than you actually see people, you know, our, our involvement in, in, in the profit-making decisions, and then that wouldn't be any good. You know, I don't want to see a television where you see more people of color, but it's white people who are profiting from all those images. You know, that's not good. That right. doesn't make me happy. That's not, that's not media equity in terms of people of color. Yes, and this this notion of a uh, you know equity is is so important, and it 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 gets us back to what started to get our conversation heated up uh, earlier. Um, but it's it's the point that you bring out in the the new preface to to the book. Uh, you mentioned this you know the, the lack of uh, minority control and ownership of the media, uh, Latinos' general inferiority in the eyes of corporate America, the class and racial disjunctions that exist between producers and consumers. So all of that, as you pointed out, that it, that have actually worsened. Since the book was published, which again it is, was published in two thousand one, we're now in two thousand you know fifteen, on the verge of two thousand sixteen. Uh, so you know an important uh, you know discussion that you bring about is this disjuncture between the assumptions that increasing representations or visibility of Latinos, whether you know, they're white Latinos on Spanish language programming or brown Latinos or, you know, on English language programming, that just that, that visibility and somehow is going to translate to uh, political power and uh, representation and power. But but that actually isn't the case. Um, uh, I'm sure there'd be plenty of those who'd be willing to push back on this by saying, as we mentioned earlier, well, we have two you know, Latinos supposedly in the Republican, um, you know, race uh, for the presidential uh, uh, ticket, uh, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. Um, and so some would use that uh, as fodder to say, well, look, you know, uh, Latinos are making it. You know, they'd use that. They'd jump on that booster narrative uh, and say, uh, you know, political power is rising in that you have these two Latinos that are um, competing for the uh, most elitist of positions, right? Um, Could you speak on that for a bit? Well, there's so much there, right? But but yeah, this this idea that you could single one Latino 
uh, <laughs> one like one person, you know, say, oh, the Latino that made it. Um, in this case, we have, you know, Ted, Ted, um, and Mark Rubio. But you know, the same story has been made about, you know, when Ricky Martin, you know, I mean, you name it, right? You put the Latino there, look, they've made it. So why can the others make it? Right, right. right. Um, it's it's really um, you know um, uh, making Latinos complicit with this meritocracy model minority um, myth that we know has never worked for Latinos. You know, it's 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 very easy to be bumped from the model minority uh, category. You know, um, I think I mentioned nine eleven as an example of how the boosterism. You know, like mm-hmm. when overnight. You know. Um, so, um, so no, I'm I'm very critical of that of that discourse because you know I think that we're too smart to buy into it, and we have nowadays you know so much evidence of how that discourse has never worked. Just like the politics of respectability has not worked with African Americans, you know. Um, so I actually think that you know that I don't think that the that I don't know. I'd like to be hopeful, and I like to think that the currency of that view is kind of um, it's, it's in decline, you know, when you have uh, Donald Trump, you know, um, making it okay to, to be, to say this kind of anti, you know, not nativist and, and immigrant and racist, outright racist statement, mm-hmm. you know. Last night when the Latin Grammys, you know, you had all the artists, you know, don't vote for racist politicians, you know, this kind of unifying, galvanizing space, you know. I think that what I, what I see here is that, you know, that that myth has so many holes that I don't think it stands anymore, you know. I don't think anybody buys into that myth except Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio themselves, you know. Um, but that, I think that that's a real minority, you know, because even, what, you know, and this is something that I did in Latino Spin in my own books, and I've, you know, when people either, you know, do research with, you know, light-skinned Latinos in corporate America, you know, they too experience racism and, and could they could uh, take over the mantle of model minority until the cows come home, you know, mm-hmm. but they're going to, you know, they speak with an accent. They're going to be, they're going to think that they're, you know, foreigners and they're going to be suspect, you know, but what do you, what do you belong here? They're going to be suspected that they got there because of affirmative action or something else, you know, exactly, like yeah. nobody in this, in this context, right? No one is safe. Uh, Latinos are not safe, and I think that it behooves us to kind of engage in the po- in politics of solidarity. Um, that's the only way out, you know, mm. because the politics mainstreaming and whitewashing and white supremacy have never worked for us, you know, mm-hmm. because some of us claim whiteness, you know, but the majority, that whiteness is suspect. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that brings us to another conversation of Latinos and, 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 and the whole whiteness, you know, and how they are, um, you know, the, the intention to kind of like, um, you know, uh, use Latinos as the kind of, you know, scapegoating for reproducing, you know, racial dis- discourses. Um, um, ah, sorry, David, I'm sorry. And now I'm no, rambling. I don't know what I'm talking about. No, you're about. good. It's, uh, that's, that's actually, I mean, that point on Latinos and whiteness, which I think is covered maybe a bit more in, um, in Latino spin or, or some of your other right writings um i think is is certainly important because uh that conversation can be interpreted in, in a number of ways i think typically the conversations around latinos and whiteness um revolve around latinos making claims to whiteness right trying to claim a a white um I think that latinos are white you know mm-hmm. and how do we 
account for the white privilege that some of us have, mm-hmm. but also in, in, be, be more skeptical about the, his, the historical, you know, the legacy of, you know, and, and, create, and create alliances that make us advance, you know, the agents that advance the dialogue, not agents that contribute to white supremacy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's an conversation, you know, when Latinos are concerned, because Latinos come from all hues, and while Latinos are racialized as a group, we need to really account for colorism and white privilege, right? Right, right. And oftentimes, you know, we don't want to do that. We're rather, oh, we're all Latinos, you know, chi-chi-ha. And I'm like, no, we also have to be very vigilant about checking in our, you know, racial prejudices and, and our entitlements and privileges. And then out of that recognition and spaces that we can really engage in a more fruitful dialogue that it's more, that advances the conversation rather than, mm-hmm. you know, turns us into peons of, you know, of, of, of white privilege, which is a terrible thing. Right. Right. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, um, you know, well, I thank you for, for speaking and, you know, taking time to, to speak on this book. I know the, the book probably seems, I don't know, like you, you wrote this thing a lifetime ago. We were talking a, a little bit, uh, before we came on air about that. But, um, I think it's, it's just such an important book because it raises so many concepts that, uh, uh, questions about what we take for granted. And it, it, a lot of that has to do with the power of, of the media. Although a lot of us like to think that we don't let the media shape our thoughts, uh, just, uh, you know, when, when I, when I grabbed the book, uh, you know, just recently again and looked at it and then, and, and stared at the title for a while, it really made me question, um, you know, the, the, our notions of, you know, the, these pan ethnic concepts. And, um, it's not that they don't have usefulness, and which I think is what your book points out to, you know, a very, critical way that it they are useful you know for building solidarity right they are useful in a number of ways that can actually be empowering and strengthening um as opposed to uh, a lot of what we get though in the media is really things that are produced for you know corporate consumption or you know really the benefit of a, a very small few is that right yeah, with Latinos, I don't want to imply that Latinos are an invention, that they don't exist, that they're a manufacturer of this industry. Far from it. There's a history, there's a social movement feeding this, this identity. Um, I wanted to question the uh, incredible power that this industry has in defining the conversation of Latinidad and why that is, which, of course, is the result of the marginality of this group. The fact that Latinos, we don't have stakeholders and the same visibility and political power in other institutions in society mm-hmm. like um, you know, politics or academia or corporate America or any other spaces. So it, it leaves this industry, Hispanic marketing, as the one brokers of Latinidad that become visible so that whenever there is, we need to find an example of Latino coming of age, right? Mm-hmm. We go to to, you know, Hispanic marketing products, right? We go to, we go to, to this space to find it. Um, and I think the best example of that was last, last week's, the, the very unfortunate HBO documentary, The Latino Explosion, which I was, you know, I died. I'm like, I couldn't watch it, just the title, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. 
But if when you look at the at the documentary, you know, it's just you know, in the whole the, argue, the whole argument, the good old argument, or the Columbine argument of pure come Latinos, and you know, the examples of the coming of age is you know, the, the Cuban Miami sound machine, you know, act, you know, musicians and the sprinkle of politicians, but that's all we have, right? Right. So it's important that we question Hispanic marketing and the marketing um, industry as a space that 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 frames the conversation, but it's, that's also part of the marginality of Latinos, and we shouldn't celebrate it, but we should question it. Right, right. That's that's a great point. And uh, I wasn't aware of that uh, documentary that you said HBO is where it came out? It's called The Latino Explosion. Okay. I know. And then, and then you wonder, you know, this is the 21st century. Exactly. And we still have corporate American HBO, I mean, you're talking about representation in mainstream America mm-hmm. that are like passing and giving money and funding projects like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. as well, just be, you know, be back in, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just when you see that, then you realize how really far behind we are today and all the work we need to do. Right. I agree. Well, it's, it's, I mean, if you want to get the press, watch it. Otherwise, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, maybe I, I think I'm gonna have to force myself and, and torture myself to sit through it. But uh, I don't know. I'll probably find a time when I'm maybe I'm more upbeat. <laughs> I have to, I couldn't watch it. I just saw the whole the whole. I mean, if you look at the one minute trailer, you kind of get the you know it's it's the same kind of regurgitated images. And in mm-hmm. fact, that you know that, that that made me write Latinos Inc. Um, years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. that historism around the Latin explosion, it's kind of the same idea regurgitated today in the 21st century. Gotcha. Right. Well, I wanted to, uh, before we close up, I wanted to give you some time to talk a bit about what you're working on now. Yes. Uh, I'm so happy. I've, I've actually just turned in this book on shopping malls in Latin America. Mm. And um, I had a lot of fun writing it. And in fact, I think it's the book that most closely resembles what I kind of did in Latinos, Inc., in that, you know, then I was in, in, immersed myself in the industry of, you know, Hispanic marketers. And for this new book, I entered the world of, you know, shopping mall developers. You know, there's, you know, mm-hmm. the international shopping malls has a vibrant um, regional conference in Latin America. There's a lot of developers. I even took a course, uh, you know, in Mexico. They have a university of shopping malls um, organized by the International Council of Shopping Malls. I mean, it's unbelievable. But it's really about the the ways in which the structures are reshaping both the class and spatial politics um, in Latin America. Um, and I, I was fascinated um, by this industry and how it works, how it's the, and, 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 and its effects, right? In, in a lot of the research is in Bogota, Colombia, but also I have a lot of comparative perspectives um, from, from the area. And I'm very excited about it. It comes out in February um, with UC Press. Oh, great. I'll be looking forward to it. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thanks again so much for taking time uh, to come and, and talk about what is truly, I think, is be, you know, is a, a, a it's not old enough to be a classic, but it's definitely one of the key pieces of literature, I think, uh, in scholarship that that most of us are introduced to, whether we are studying Latino studies or media studies or, you know, cultural studies. Uh, it's just, um, you know, it, it's had a, a very, I think, enduring role. And the, you know, just the fact that it was re-released, you know, just a few years ago by UC Press, uh, you know, speaks to that. So thanks again for your, your time, Marlene, and for, for coming on uh, to New Books and Latino Studies. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun speaking with you today. Same here. Thanks again. 
Thank you for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and I hope you have enjoyed my conversation today with Arlene Davila, author of Latinos Inc., The Marketing and Making of a People, published by the University of California Press in 2001 and re-released in an updated edition in 2012. If you'd like to get a copy of Dr. Davila's book, I encourage you to do so by following the link at, on our New Books and Latino Studies page, which will take you to Amazon. Also, if you'd like to contact us, please send us an email at newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com or feel free to reach out to us on social media through Facebook or Twitter. Thank you.